Welcome to the Big Nine Zero, episode 90. God, we're getting up there now. Uh, this episode, I had the amazing pleasure of welcoming back the spectacular Clarissa Zorley. Uh This time, we are having a deep dive into her interest with regards to graffiti uh, and all the things that make graffiti one, an occupation, and two, we kind of explore it using the dark side of occupation. So let's roll it. G'day, my name's Brock Cook, and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Yeah, so this interesting graffiti kind of started when I was working on a male acute forensic ward. Um, In my first weeks I was on the ward, I realised that I had a group of patients who weren't engaged in any structured activities that we offered. Um, And when I started actually talking to them, a lot of them seemed to have graffiti as an interest. And for some of them, it was the only interest that they could identify, um, perhaps in addition to smoking weed or drinking alcohol. Yep. Um, But none of the things that we offered in the unit matched with their interests at all. So you weren't offering weed or alcohol in the unit, I presume? No, and we weren't offering graffiti either because aerosols are banned in medium security. Or ah, not banned, course. but they're, they're, they're something that needs to be carefully monitored. Yeah. So I, so I assume this kind of, well, I, I would look at this as a, a dark side of occupation kind of thing. Is that how you sort of viewed it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the dark side of occupation was something that I'd already explored when I worked in acute mental health um, when I first qualified and something I explored in eating disorders as well. But when I came to this setting, I felt really stuck and I felt like I didn't know where to go with it. And so, yeah, this was kind of an exploration of what do we do? Like, how do we explore the unexplored of people? And then what do we actually do with that information that we get? Yeah, because that's an interesting one because I think like we've spoken about – actually, we've only spoken very briefly about this particular aspect of your, your interest, mainly because we wanted to save it for this podcast. But <laughs> like I've had in-depth conversations with a number of people, including uh, Rebecca Twinley herself. She's been on the podcast and I speak to her probably every second day. But um, <laughs> about the dark side and – I guess what the concept is. So if those of you who aren't aware or haven't heard of it, step one would be to go back and have a listen to the episode with Bex because she explains it in great detail. But essentially it's looking at occupations which traditionally may or traditionally have kind of been ignored because they're uh, not socially accepted or they're illegal or they're not health positive in some cases as well um it, but they still fit the commonly looked at definitions of occupation so people are still engaging with them 
uh, for a purpose. They actually hold meaning for those people. They're having an impact on health. Um, not now, not always positive, um, but it actually provides you know structure and meaning for the for the people that are engaging in them. Um, a lot of the common examples, and I've spoken about these quite often on the podcast, but a lot of the common examples are often given things like drug use. And like I've worked with a lot of people throughout my career who engage in recreational drug use, but not for the reason that majority of people would think. Some of them are engaging in it because that it fills a social need. Um, so it's actually filling sort of a positive need with a you know not very positive occupation kind of thing. So the the dark side of occupation concept is shedding light on those occupations that are kind of like the dark side of the moon. It's shedding light on those occupations that are often sort of hidden away. And I know one of the, the things that I talked about with Vex, I can't remember if I talked about it on the podcast or just in a random conversation I had with her, is that our traditional, what would you call it, our traditional structure, I guess, of categorizing occupations is very sort of positivist um you look at uh productivity it's a very positive framing you look at leisure it's a very positive framing rest very positive framing um you know we're not measuring people's stress and tiredness and (laughs) that kind of thing so Mm. i think in a way that's the the way we've kind of structured how we actually look at occupations in general has created this unintentional i guess i call it a shadow line to stick with the dark side of the moon theme um where some of these occupations that maybe don't fit that positivist uh frame i guess um are often hidden and ignored or not really looked at as having an impact on the individual that we're working with and i guess the the concept that the Bex is trying to get out there um, is for the benefit of the people that we work with because we're now it's shining light on those occupations that don't often get light shone on it. And I think one of the things in having a chat with you was I've never, I had never up until that point considered graffiti as one of them. It's mm. I don't know if it's a, a common example that people would think of when we think of occupations that may need to be looked at you know as occupations that don't often get light shone on them but you you've done a fair bit of I guess investigation into this I hear yeah I mean just going back to your point I think most people don't think a lot about graffiti Um, I mean if you live in an urban environment you probably you see it a lot but you probably don't notice it or think about it it's just there yeah that is Um, true actually But maybe my journey with the dark side started when I was six years old, actually, Um, because I remember asking one of my cousins why people write on the walls. Um, (laughs) And I don't even remember what he said. I think he just said something like, oh, it's probably fun. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, I think most people don't ask that question. It's not an occupation that we give much thought to in our general lives, never mind our professional lives. Yeah, that is true. But even... Even in like a forensic unit where arguably we think a lot about the dark side of occupation, we think a lot about violence, we think a lot about substance misuse, we don't think a lot about graffiti there either. Hmm. Um, because it's not, it's not a, 
a violent occupation, um, you know, we're, we're constantly looking at risk of violence. And so graffiti doesn't even come into that risk assessment. It's just something, it's, it kind of falls into an other category. You know, these are other convictions someone has was for um, criminal damage. But we don't really address that in our clinical practice. I wonder also too, because it seems, and I don't know a huge amount about it, but you're right, you don't think about it because you just see it on the wall, but you don't ever often see anyone engaging in it. Like it's kind of a hidden away, you know, it seems to be done in the middle of the night uh, occupation. You don't see people doing it. Whereas, especially if you work in health services, like things like drugs and you know, that kind of mm. stuff, like you see it, like you see evidence of it, you see it. Whereas, yeah, the, the graffiti thing, you're right. You kind of, it's it's just there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, graffiti is literally done in the shadows. Like it is done when there is no one else around and when it's dark. People don't do graffiti, like you said, in the middle of the day. And so for me, it's almost like the, the perfect example of an occupation that could be on the dark side. Fascinating. So I remember the only time I've ever, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the only time I've ever actually seen graffiti happening. So I went to Adelaide. It was my very first national conference way back in 2013, I think. And as happens to me, because I get all super excited when I go to conferences, I don't sleep very often for that week. <laughs> and I found myself, uh, I'd never been to Adelaide before, uh, whether it was a good idea or not, I found myself wandering around the city in the middle of the night. And I remember walking under a bridge heading back, uh, like an overpass bridge heading back to the hotel. It was probably about 12.30 at night. And under the bridge, and I think it was like an actual program, um, because they had a van and they had like cameras set up and everything was a whole a whole group of people uh, that was sort of graffitiing the wall under the bridge. And I remember, because mm. again, like you said, I remember going sort of clicking, going, I've never actually seen this. So I just stood there and mm. sort of chilled out for 10 minutes and just watched them work. And the fact and that- And isn't it mesmerizing? No one, it is. I've never seen, because I sort of- you see some graffiti and a lot of it is, you know, uh, really clever. And I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm th I'm differentiating graffiti from something like tagging. I'm talking more like the big sort of wall art pieces kind of thing that you see. There may be some similarities. I don't know much about it, but these guys were doing like a full wall, but they had just what looked like hundreds of different little spray cans. I'm assuming mm. they all look the same to me, but I'm assuming they were different colors. <laughs> Bits of cardboard that they were using as like almost like a mobile stencil that they were using to stop like overspray. And, but it was a group of, I think at the time it was like four of them were spraying at the time, but they were all working on the one big art piece. So it was mm. somewhat of like, I guess almost like a team, like a teamwork kind of thing as well. It was really interesting, and I just remember just standing there for a while in the middle of the night in Adelaide under a bridge, which sounds really weird when I say it out <laughs> loud. But again, like it kind of clicked like I've never – I always see graffiti, um, you know, when I travel or on, on walls and train stations mm. and all that sort of stuff, and I never – I always assume for whatever reason that it's just one dude. 
Um, yeah. Just one person going, like each individual sort of art piece is one person, but seeing like a big group of them all working on the same piece of art, I'm like, okay, there's actually a lot more to this than I'm aware of. And the fact that I've never seen it happen before is probably one of the reasons why I have all of these preconceptions about it that I don't know. Mm. And I think it's it's also because it's something that we don't engage with very much and we perhaps have a different view of what graffiti is to what the graffiti writers, what their view is. Yeah. And I'd, I'd so in this conversation, that. what we're having now is a perfect example. So you see graffiti as those big colourful murals. Yeah. And, and that's what I thought when I met these people. And I was like, oh, I hear you do graffiti. Why don't you come along to the art group and we can you can do some work on a canvas? And they were like, I don't do well, in fact, one of them said to me, I don't do characters, I only do letters. And I didn't understand what that meant. Yep. Now I understand that to him, the definition of graffiti was it has to be words, okay. it can't be pictures. Yeah, yep. And um, that, that's, not, that's not necessarily the definition. And I really should know what the actual definition of graffiti is. I don't have it. Um, <laughs> but the, the sense that I've got is that for people who are engaged in um, you know, this, this type of graffiti, and it's all about who the intended audience is. So if you are putting words on walls, you know, you mentioned tags. Yep. You know, if you're tagging your name on a wall, that's not for um, the general public. You know, n- nobody's going to stop and take a photo of it unless they're me and they're trying to understand the dark side of occupation <laughs> um, or unless they're really engaged in that subculture. You know, it's the pictures that get photos taken of them are those really big, colorful murals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so often people will differentiate if it's for other graffiti writers, then it's graffiti. If it's something that's for the public, then that's more street art. Okay. And so what Makes I sense. realized quite quickly was when I was going in and saying, oh yeah, I love, I love graffiti. I saw this really great piece down. I didn't even use the word piece because I didn't know that at the time, but I saw this really great picture somewhere. I was immediately alienating people because I wasn't talking about the same occupation. Interesting. And I didn't realize that. And I'm really glad that I built enough of a relationship with them where they felt that they could correct me on that. And they could say, what you're talking about is completely switching me off because that is not what I'm talking about. So I just actually looked up the definition just for interest. Oh, yeah. So definition, uh, writing or drawing, scribbled, scratched, or sprayed illicitly, so specifically illicitly, mm-hmm. on a wall or other surface, surface in a public place. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, and so that, that's not the same thing that we're talking about. I was going to say that a, even doesn't you know, fit with what you just program. described. Well, I, I think it, it does. Um, I mean, there's, there's a different nuance there, isn't there? But I mm. think with it being illicit um, – that is because you are doing that for other graffiti writers. So if you do something in a space that's difficult to get to, you're not allowed to go there, it's dangerous, you're going to earn more respect from doing that. And so that's where the illicit comes in. So graffiti is all about respect and, well, not all about, it's it's got many different meanings for different people, but one of the draws is that you, you, you earn respect from your community for doing something that's daring or a bit, illegal or a bit illicit and so yeah it could be you could be using a paint pen or you could be using a piece of glass to etch something or you could you know there's all sorts of ways you could do it but basically you're putting your name somewhere um, or it might not be a name 
So it might be something called a throw up, which is two letters that kind of are quite stylized and often quite bubbly. Okay. Um, so yeah, it can it can look in it can look different, but it's still the same essential occupation. But this is all the stuff I didn't know when I sat down to have those conversations. Do you in your I guess really like where did it come from? Where where do you know like the I guess the history of it? Like how did it start? Because it seems like a like it obviously has roots somewhere, but it seems pretty random like a random thing to i guess have developed like you've you've already mentioned so many aspects that i want to get into and we will mm. around you know the levels of respect and different places and you know the different types and how it's viewed differently um public to like the actual i don't know are they even called artists do they call themselves artists <laughs> now i have so that many questions <laughs> And that, that is a perfect question. And I think those are the types of questions we need to be asking when we're doing this work. Um, because, I, you know, I was using the word artist. Mm. And again, that was alienating the, person, the people I was working with. Um, some of them liked that term. Yep. Most of them didn't. And they were like, I am not an artist. I am a writer. A writer? And that okay. really, you know, a graffiti writer. And that was really yep. core to their identity that they were not artists. And they were writers, whereas other people were like, oh, yeah, well, I am an artist and that, that does fit with my identity. So I would say, like, as a learning point, check out with people what terminology they prefer. But I tend to default to graffiti writer if I don't know what someone prefers. Interesting. See, I never would have even considered that. <laughs> no, and, and why would you? Yeah. You know, this is like, this is um, specific to a community that we don't, have access to and so I think it's, it's really important to be really curious when you meet people and really respectful um, I almost saw myself actually as an ethnographer kind okay. of you know yeah, yeah. Um, so immersing an yourself in the exactly you immerse yourself but you need to also understand the language of the people that you're working with and you need to become fluent in that you need to get to know a whole range of people so you understand what the norms are in that community and that was the mindset that I went into um, when, when I did this work. And I'm just, I'm kind of aware as I'm talking about this, that it sounds like um, I'm super interested in graffiti and I, I am, um, <laughs> but that wasn't the case when I started. It was, it wasn't about the graffiti. Um, the, the graffiti people. was just, yeah. And it was about actually, I'm working with someone who's got a different experience of the world to me and they do different things to me. And those occupations that they engage in, the communities they're part of, they get something really important from that. And I need to understand what that is. Because what I was doing was coming in with occupations that to me look similar-ish. So come on, let's go to art group. Um, yeah. And I couldn't understand why they couldn't meet me halfway and try it until I understood more about the occupation and was like, that couldn't be further from their experience yeah you know i'm not talking about something that equates at all it doesn't meet the same needs it doesn't have the same appeal and so i had to go in and really understand the occupation and understand the context before i could look at any interventions and that's it like just because they're both using paint essentially doesn't mean mm. that it's the same thing or that they're going to be interested in you know either vice versa and also that the sensory experience is really different if we go back to the, the, the idea of paint. So 
Um, if you ask someone to paint on a canvas with a paintbrush and some acrylic paint, um, you know, that's a very different sensory experience to holding a spray can um, and just seeing this jet of colour shoot out on a wall in front of you. It's really fast. It's really technical. Yeah. Um, it's really vibrant. When you've then got a paintbrush separating you and your art, there's more distance, um, there's more friction. It's just not the same experience at all, even if it sounds like, you know, they're both painting. Yeah, one's yeah. with a spray can and one's, one's with a paintbrush, but they're not the same. So different on every level, <laughs> literally. Absolutely. And, and we're just talking about the physical act of the occupation there. Yeah. You know, there's so much more in terms of the meaning and the context. And I mean, you asked, sorry, I missed your question. You asked about um, history of graffiti. Yeah, yes. Um, and this is something that I haven't really looked into. Um, but I think that that is an important thing for us to consider. Um, but, if, you know, just thinking off the top of my head, I think people have probably been doing graffiti since they dot. You know, we've got cavemen putting pictures up on walls. Mm. Um I went to um, Ephesus in um, Turkey, like an ancient city, and people had etched symbols into the, the you know, the stone walls there. Or I've gone to really old churches and seen that people have etched symbols there. So I think it's something we've always done as human beings, probably as a way of communicating. Yeah. Um, and probably what we call graffiti now um, it's probably, I imagine, come more from hip-hop culture. But I could be wrong because it's not something I've really researched. Interesting. Well, I, I think the difference, I mean, obviously, you touched on it before, like from that definition that we looked at before, the main difference would be, I guess, caveman. Like, like you were talking about with your in Turkey and with you know, cave paintings and that kind of stuff was a means of communication and at those points in time is probably one of very few means of communication mm. the difference i see just from a semantics point of view is that um the illegal aspect of it so what i'm not sure when um you know i don't even know what the charge would be probably something like defacing a public property or something like that mm. um but when that actually became uh, a law, depending on what country you're in, I guess it would be different. Mm. But I think it, that, like you said, we've been doing it for so long, but then it all of a sudden becomes graffiti because well, when the laws are introduced, I would assume. Mm. And I guess, you know, maybe part of graffiti is a bit about rebellion, um, maybe for some people. Okay. You know, maybe you live maybe you live in a society where you feel marginalized, you feel like you haven't got much power, and maybe doing something that's illegal is a way to kind of reclaim that and be like, hey, I'm here, I exist, um, I've got some, some power here. Um, I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but that's potentially something for some people. So I've just seen something that looks specifically at tagging, saying that Graffiti, mm. graffiti had been around for a long time, but tagging as a concept um, has only been around or emerged in the 1990s. So it's still relatively new. Um, that would probably fit with hip hop. Well, yeah, potentially, especially well, I guess the uh, I was going to say the popularization of hip hop. 
Um, mm. I know because I'm a little bit of a hip hop head. Um, like that mm. sort of the the grassroots of hip hop was sort of coming up through the 70s, 80s, but mm. the popularization of it probably really didn't hit sort of widespread until yeah, yeah, late 80s, 90s, that kind of thing. I know obviously in some communities it's going to be different, but um my sort of gauge on that is I'm in Australia, I'm a long way away. When it gets here, that's when you know it's widespread. <laughs> mm. So, but yeah. It's, and, it's, you know, I, oh, yeah, okay. and I was just going to say, I think it would be um, great for someone to look at the history. And actually, I, I know other people have. Mm. You know, there are people who study graffiti for a living. Um, but I would love to see somebody look at the history of the occupation and kind of, yeah, what that means for the present day. A lot of the the stuff that I've, um, I say a lot, but I've only really sort of read a little bit recently, um, but I guess some of the stereotypes that uh, are fairly common with regards to graffiti are um, linking it with gang relations and that kind of stuff. And I know that some of the stuff that I've read um, have implicated that as one of the like possible roots of graffiti, but nowadays it's not really synonymous with with gangs, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I I know I've certainly read stuff about graffiti being a way to mark territory and yeah, emerging as part of gang culture. Um, but certainly with the people I've spoken to, that hasn't been a feature. And so I guess it that's again another reason why it's so important to find out people not make assumptions and just find out how they got into doing something what it means to them and and i think talking about who they do it with okay you know these these occupations are not necessarily done in isolation and so for me i've i've learned that a lot of people there's a social meaning to doing it whether it's who's going to see what they've done or whether it's who they go out with and who they're spending time with when they are graphing when they are getting up you know different terms people might use for what they're doing so often people will go out in at least two so one person might keep watch while the other person paints yep and sometimes in bigger groups than that and often people belong to a crew which is a collection of graffiti writers yep do they have like so would a crew have like a similar style or it's just like essentially like a group of mates who all have a similar interest kind of thing yeah it's usually about the the relationship between people um but there might you know they'll usually they'll have a name which i don't know about worldwide but in the uk it's often shortened to three letters okay um, so it might be something like dds for example and then whenever somebody does any graffiti they might add dds to what they're doing to show their affiliation to that group yep interesting so there is kind of a i guess a a collective identity uh tied Mm. in with it as well yeah there's a community and that's what i had failed to realize when i sat down with those people in the beginning and was saying you know let's find you something else to do and i hadn't realized that by if if I if that person lost access to that occupation, they would lose access to their community and their support and all the people that matter to them. And if they were to 
change the way they did graffiti, they might risk um, losing respect in their mind to their peers. Interesting. And so it has a really big cost to consider giving something up. Because I think that's like this is there's a lot of <laughs> correlations I can draw with you know, occupations that uh, OTs work with all the time. In that, I don't believe that we put enough time into actually understanding the occupations that we're trying to help people work. Um, mm. And this is a perfect example of it. In that, you know, it might seem logical to most people that. You know, like like you gave the example before. Oh, you, okay, you do graffiti. Here's an art group. To most people, mm. they would probably think that's a logical kind of, there's some logical links there, but not understanding the actual occupation, uh, there's so, they're not even remotely close to each other. And I find the same, going back to my uh, illicit drug use example, the same thing. People are like, oh, you do drugs, that's bad, you got to stop, but not really understanding what that engagement in that particular occupation actually gives a person and what we are taking away mm. by in some cases forcing them to to cease yeah and you know this often these occupations have made up a significant part of someone's occupational identity and um, for a lot of people i worked with this was their identity yeah. i am a writer and so if you take that away, people feel like they've got nothing left. And so I think it's really important to not go in with the view to take something away, but just go in with the view to understand and to understand the whole rich picture of what something means to someone before you then start intervening. Unless obviously it's a, something you need to intervene in immediately to keep someone safe. Yeah. With, uh, so I'm assuming because you're working in a forensic unit, I know the question is going to be asked. Um, were the crimes that people were, I guess, in there around any, usually anything to do with the graffiti or was it something completely separate? I don't think I met anyone who was in the unit specifically for graffiti. Yeah. And um, graffiti would be something on a long list of convictions but they were usually in for violent crimes. And in your experience in actually investigating and learning more about graffiti, do you see any, I guess, links between, say, someone who engages in graffiti and also engages in other criminal or uh, antisocial behaviours, or is it is that not like a mutually exclusive thing? I don't know. I mean, there must be someone out there who's researched this, but just anecdotally, mm. I don't think there is a specific link. Um, I think that was kind of a, a preconception I came in with. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought perhaps that um, graffiti writers might be dangerous, um, which I'm really ashamed to say now that that was what I thought. But I, you know, I imagined that they might be part of gangs or they might be um, really antisocial. Actually, I've met a lot of graffiti writers and they are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. Um, often people are really kind. Um, sometimes people are even quite shy or even have really geeky interests, um, okay. which I wasn't expecting. Um, and I mean, again, I'm just speaking about people I've met. But yeah, yeah. There's su such a rich range of people. 
and some people would have will have engaged in crimes maybe like shoplifting yep. that might have been linked to their graffiti so paint was really expensive yeah, yeah. and so um if you go into a graffiti shop there's often really heavy security for that reason okay um but yeah i i'm not sure that there is a link in fact i'd be surprised if there was a link between violence and graffiti interesting you know if you think about it it's even if it is considered a crime it's not about hurting another human being it's often you know people might go and cause criminal damage to a, a massive corporation yeah um but not to a, another person yeah 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 and i'm no, not I, saying that there isn't violence in the community but i don't think that's the main thing i yeah i just wonder because i think a lot of people view like I would think, uh, obviously, in majority of countries, at least a lot of Westernized countries, uh, graffiti is technically illegal. But I think most people would agree it would be a fairly minor crime. Um, mm. But I think uh, some of the stereotypes that I've heard throughout my many years of existence uh, would be things like looking at it, I guess, minor crimes as kind of gateway to to more major crimes um where again like it's a stereotype i i don't genuinely believe that that is the case um but i just know in the process of trying to understand some of these uh non i guess pro social occupations that we need to address these stereotypes so that you know well, because they need to be addressed we don't want them mm. sort of influencing um therapist perception of specific occupations or yeah i i think a lot of the reason why often these occupations are you know left in the dark is because uh, of preconceptions that you know we have from growing up or we have from societal values or parental views or whatever it is um like you said like we said earlier most of us have never seen occupation uh, seen graffiti being done we've never engaged with anyone who's actually done it um but everyone i would think that listening to this would know what it is uh have seen it uh would therefore have some preconception about you know who put it there i think i think the fact that it's such a sort of a hidden occupation almost puts it in a place where people's uh experiences and preconceptions fill in the gaps in a way so because it's mm. so hidden and you never see anyone doing it you know, people assume that it's criminals or gangs or whatever the little signs are because we don't understand what the little codes mean and you know, it obvi obviously might mean this or blah, 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 blah. But on the flip side, I would imagine that, I guess, it, technically one way of fixing that would be to shine more light on it. But on the flip side, shining more light on it would defeat the whole purpose of that subculture and would take away a lot of the value from that subculture, I would imagine. Perhaps, but I also find that a lot of people, when I've asked them, and maybe that's because of my role, but it's people are almost pleased that someone's showing an interest. Okay. You know, so um, I think it's been quite powerful for people to not be told they have to go to the art group and to have someone go, just tell me what, what do you get out of this? What do you enjoy? What do you miss? You know, and I think that that 
it's very validating on a human level for someone to recognize something that you've spent maybe 10, 15 years really investing a lot of time and a lot of effort in developing your skill and becoming really good and really respected for what you do. To have someone go, wow, you've, you've worked hard on this is really validating. Yep. So something I learned when I, when I started looking into this is, you know, those tags that we see that we're like, oh, that's just a word on a wall. Yeah. Yep. That's not just a word. That word has so much meaning. Yeah. And when people are choosing that name, I mean, it's, the process is different for everyone, but they might be thinking about a word that has a lot of meaning to them. Um, or they might be thinking about the specific letters that they like the look of and the specific combination of how they would look together and then trying to create a word that looks visually appealing and has the right letters. Um, you know, they maybe don't want to have two of the same letter next to each other. They maybe want to have an odd number of letters, you know, depending on who they are. So they put a lot of thought into what that name is going to be. It's not just a word. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've loved asking people, actually, tell me about your tag or your graph name. Like, how did that, where did you come up with that? Where did the idea come from? People have always got a great story. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as it was someone else's tag and I liked it. And so I kind of Sorry. stole it. <laughs> Plagiarism. No, oh. no, not usually. It's, <laughs> and and so, sometimes it's just quite a small story, but it, it always gives you an insight into the person. I think that's, uh, I, I think that's something where OTs can really step in is that narrative exploration. I think that's, quite often a strength of ours but i don't think we like i said earlier i just don't think that we use it enough Mm. and it's you know it's not difficult when you know if if we're in the right mindset we've got all the right skills to ask these questions and to explore these occupations in the way that we do any occupation definitely but i think it takes us to to come in with a with a attitude of curiosity and non-judgment and just going, just help me understand your world. So what what other preconceptions around graffiti did you either, well, I'm sure there might have been, there must have been at least one that was confirmed, but what else, I guess, did you learn in, I guess, getting to know the subculture? I think, I think the biggest thing I learned was how individual it is for everyone. And so, you know, even even thoughts that I had of, you know, maybe this is about something to earn respect from other people, or maybe it's about, you know, all, all the theories I had or all the things that some people told me, when I spoke to other people, that was not what they got out of it at all. And so I learned that it is, it's really individual. You know, for some people, it's art, for some people, it's vandalism, for some people, it's a way of communicating something. Or it's just a pleasurable sensory experience, or it's something that you do with your friends. What do you think out of the like? Obviously, you can't speak on behalf of all graffiti artists, but uh, like, mm. was there any, I guess, reasons for engagement that were like common threads, or but I guess surprising common threads for you before, like compared to what you might have thought beforehand? No, I think it was really individual. Um, but I, I think that the social aspect was something that initially I hadn't acknowledged and then I realised more about the community. 
Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that, maybe I haven't spoken to enough people, but I'm not sure I have found a common thread with everyone. I guess it's, it's similar to other occupations that people do. There's such a range of reasons why people do it, what they get out of it, what it means to them. Um, and for some people, it's almost quite, um, I don't know, quite abstract, some of the meaning. So I, I remember I was walking through a tunnel and I saw some graffiti that said, um, though it may be covered up by many layers, I've left a mark. And though it, though I may not, the mark remains. That's deep. And I don't know if that's a quote from something, but I was like, yeah, like someone's just written this up on a wall and that's clearly how they feel. And they've just captured one of the things that this occupation means to them. It's like, even if you cover this up, I'm still going to have been here. That, yeah, wow. I'm, that's, again, similar to the graffiti, I guess, that is deep on so many levels. I didn't even really know how to mm. process that. Was a bit I know. <laughs> it's it's amazing, isn't it? And, and And that's the thing I think, you know, a lot of people – are deep thinkers and they do they put a lot of thought into what they do it's not just mindless um you know something that they've just fallen into necessarily it's something that means a lot to them people often will take it quite seriously and i think i so i a question that i have and i just had a look it's also a question uh that was sent to me by rebecca twinley herself uh, so I'll, I'll read hers out because she probably puts it more eloquently than I could. <laughs> um, she writes, your efforts to really establish authentic dialogue with the people you work with has been exemplary. Can you tell me and the listeners how and why this has been important and achieved? And I guess to add on to that, my query is, yeah, like in being able to establish this dialogue and learn what you've learned, how has that changed uh, how you work with people or your perceptions of working with people. Mm. So I guess there's, there's quite a few things in there, but in terms of why it was important, I think carrying on the usual way that I would have addressed this wasn't going to get me anywhere. And the more that I learned about this occupation, the more I realised that there can be quite a lot of risks involved that I hadn't been aware of and that maybe the team weren't thinking about. And so the way that someone engages in the occupation could be quite physically dangerous to them. And if we're not aware of that and what factors impact on that risk, we may be sending someone out into a dangerous situation um, and that we just haven't been aware of. Okay. And so I, I just felt like it was something that I needed to get a grasp on for that reason. Um but also, I think just on a personal level, I just, it was kind of a puzzle. I was like, I don't understand this. And I want to understand how it works and what impact we can make as occupational therapists. Or do we even want to slash need to make an impact? It was, it was just a really big conundrum to me. And so to answer the, the question about how, how I went about it, um, I started off visiting what we call halls of fame or like legal graffiti walls. Okay. And just walking around and just having a look and observing what the graffiti looked like. And this was great because I could actually see people engaging in the occupation as well because it was legal and it was an open space for anyone to go to. I could watch and see what it looked like. Yeah. So that sounds um, similar to like what I may have seen in, in Adelaide. 
Yeah, in fact, they often are in tunnels. The first place I went to was in a tunnel. So um, it may have been the same same kind of thing. Um, and so I got to see, like, uh, here's something that surprised me. Graffiti is really physically involved. Like, people are stretching, they're reaching. Um, if you do graffiti and you haven't done it before or you haven't done it for a while, you can be really achy afterwards. Oh, <laughs> like, really? It's, it's quite physically demanding. So did you try it? I did try it, yeah. Um, so I went to um, a, like a street art tour okay. in one of our kind of hipstery areas here in London um, just to kind of understand that side of things. And I went and had a look around at all these you know, pieces of art, some of which were legal, some of them were not. Um, and as part of that tour, they offered an opportunity to do a workshop um, where you could learn how to do stencils. And so um, I cut out stencils and use spray paint and spray them onto a wall. And that, that was quite fun. So then I really learned like the feeling of, of spray paint coming out of a can. It's an exhilarating feeling. The sensory, um, the sensory experience is just great. Um, but it's really technical. And so you have to have the can at the right distance away from the wall move it at the right speed and have the right cap to get the effect that you want. And if those things are not all in place, you don't, it doesn't work or you end up with drips or it doesn't look right. Or if you've angled it in the wrong direction, it, yeah, it doesn't come out the way you wanted it to. First question, what is a cap? <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so, you know, on a spray can, Yes. Um, at the top, there's like a white thing that you press down on so to get little, the paint out. Little, yeah, the little button thing that you actually yeah so that's a cap and those are interchangeable so oh. you can buy there's so many different kinds of caps so there might be fat caps which um spread paint out over a really broad area okay so that the dot that comes out is much bigger and so people might choose that if they want to do something really fast and really big and something really quick yep so if somebody um i don't know if this is international but in london a lot of graffiti is silver and black Okay. And they call it chrome and chrome and black okay. graffiti, um, and so they'll do a really big um, throw up on the wall, for example, that's silver and black. So two colours, really fast, and they can get away quickly. Um, but then they would need a specific cap for that, and um, that uses up a lot of paint very quickly. But it, you know, it, it gets gets the job done. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas if you wanted to do something that was really intricate, you might need a thinner cap. Um, and you might need to be closer to the wall and it might take longer, you might use less paint, um, or you might want some really specific artistic effects um, where you would then use different caps for that. And so I had no idea that it was so technical. Oh, I had no idea they came in different caps. <laughs> I was thought <laughs> you just got whatever came with the can. Well, yeah. You See? And, but you know what? And people will, will have several of each cap because they clog up um and it, you know your the technique you use can mean that it doesn't clog as quickly but um yeah if you're not cleaning your caps between use for example or if, depending on the temperature it might start clogging and you need to quickly switch to a different cap Fair so well. yeah there's there's so much to this yeah. occupation so and we're just talking caps now we're not talking paint um, yeah. we're not talking surface so the surface that you do it on has a huge effect as well 
And these are all things I had no idea when I was sat there talking to this person going, yeah, maybe you do something else. And they were yeah. like, do you have any idea how I've honed my craft? Like I know what paint to use on what surface or what cap to use yeah. for what effect. And you're just telling me to give all of that up and go pick up a paintbrush. I was going to say, the, like, going back, keep going back to that particular example. I can imagine now uh, the impact of what you had suggested would almost be offensive. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I think it did alienate people. Yeah. And I, I am so glad that they were able to say that to me and that they were willing to teach me about this. Um, but I also recognized you know, I didn't want to be spending my entire clinical day asking people to explain to me about caps because I had reports <laughs> to write and I had other things to do. So, so I did most of this in my own time. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was because it was just a, a challenge that I, a, a puzzle that I needed to solve and something I needed to understand. Yep, we did um, talk about in the in the last podcast about your fascination with people <laughs> and how they work. So I'm not surprised yeah. at all that you are. Uh, Probably, I would imagine, became somewhat obsessed with cracking this one. I spent two years trying <laughs> to understand this. <laughs> um, I'm not saying I, I spent every day of those two years doing it, but, you know, it was a process because, um, yeah, it takes time to understand what questions you even need to ask. Um, and, and, you know, even, you know, I went away and did this this workshop, um, you know, where, where I learned how to use spray paint and stencils. Yep. And then when I spoke to my patients about it, and I was like, right, guys, we actually did this workshop, and now I understand what you mean about spray paint. I, I can definitely see what you mean. Um, but they'd switched off for me. And I was like, I don't understand. I'm, I'm speaking your language now. Why are you not engaged with this? Yep. And I was like, okay, tell me, like, what are you thinking? And they were like, stencils are not graffiti. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Whoops. <laughs> And so, I mean, again, that depends on <laughs> depends on who you talk to. But they were like, "That's more street art. Like, that's not graffiti. That's not what I do. That's cheating." <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, "Okay." So again, like, I thought I'd understood your occupation, and I've missed it again. Yeah. And and so yeah. So then it was. It's just things like that where you kind of have to keep revising your understanding. It's it's. It does kind of throw up almost like a professional existential crisis in a way in that it has taken however many years for you to get the understanding that you have now of mm. one occupation. <laughs> yeah. And we as therapists are meant to look at everything from Mm. Uh, not even just everything at that point in time, but everything through lifespan and its development. Um, it, like, it, it makes you wonder <laughs> how or if we're actually even remotely being effective in spreading ourselves so broad. I guess that's why things like this podcast are so important. You know, I've done the work. And so there's no need, I mean, obviously, by all means, people can research graffiti themselves, but oh, yeah. we don't all have to go out and do this process because it just needs Not a few people to research. Yeah. You know, I can share the learning I've got um, and other people might take that conversation forward, but not everyone needs to learn about graffiti. No, that's a good point. Um, but even just holding that information in your head. Like imagine like the to so the level of depth that you've now got 
around graffiti. Imagine if we had to have that level of depth, with, which, and I can probably speak for you in this, isn't the level of depth that someone that's been engaging in it for a decade would have. Mm. It's still probably still in that beginner range of of knowledge, maybe sort of towards, oh, towards the intermediate. But imagine if we had to have that level of depth for every single thing. It's like it doesn't. It, yeah, these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> but I don't think I don't think we need to have that level of depth. So I think perhaps if we if we are asking the right questions from the get go to our mm. service users and saying, okay, explain to me, I want to understand. Tell me what 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 it means to you, how you do it, what does it involve? Um, you know, they can explain that to us as we do in any assessment. But then the other thing is, I don't think it needs to be us as OTs doing this work. Yep. So when I was doing this research, I came across loads of books from like anthropologists, sociologists who've done kind of what I've done, but in much more depth, where they've gone and immersed themselves in these communities for years, um, sometimes kind of almost like undercover and um, engaging in illegal things to really understand it. Yep. Um, or some people, like I read this book by someone who was actually looking at where words were positioned on the wall and the relation that one, like one tag had to another and what you could draw from that. And so there's people who've studied this in so much depth. We don't need to do that. Um, I think we just need to understand the bits that we need to understand for our job. And in some ways, if I could just crystallize all of my learning about it is that it's a really complex occupation as probably all of the occupations on the dark side are it's complex and it's individual and so you need to understand what it means for that person and how that person does it a hundred percent i could could not agree more i think one of the the things i guess i'm trying to highlight with um like what i was saying before about uh, imagine if we had to know all this is the fact that a lot of people won't even attempt to get to know anything really about the occupations that their their clients are engaging in and quite often we get stuck in our own dogma uh, and we get sort of almost shoestrung to productivity, leisure, rest, etc. and we, we can't, we don't know any other way to look outside of that which Oh, to be honest, is probably the worst thing you can do as a therapist because you're not going to make mm-hmm. any progress with anyone looking at productivity, rest, and leisure. Um, I feel I'm sure there'll be a thousand people that disagree with me, and that's cool. But um, <laughs> unless you're looking at, like you just said, then unless you're looking at what that particular occupation means to a person and I'm talking the actual occupation, not some weird convoluted category of occupation from 80 years ago, unless you're Mm. looking at the actual occupation and what that means to the individual that you're working with or the group or the community, whoever you happen to be working with, you're not, I guess, you're not being as effective as you could be as an occupational therapist. Mm. Like it would be very easy for you to have essentially gone, that's illegal, we can't look at that. I One of the biggest questions I always get asked 
uh, from students is like, oh, you know, how do you go working with someone who was using illicit substances or who has committed a crime, etc.? Oh, I'm like, you just, you work? I got, I, you know, Same maybe, process. Yes, exactly. There's no difference uh, for things like, you know, uh, more severe crimes. Yeah, there might be some safety things you put in place. Mm. But other than that, on terms of occupational therapy, same deal. You mm. go through the same process. You can run the same processes. You can use the same models. Um Definitely keep the dark side of occupation in mind because it, I think it what it does is it kind of forces people not to ignore some of those uh, occupations that previously would have been ignored or might be easier to ignore, um, mm. which is unfortunate, but it still happens. It still happens. I see so many OTs that are not necessarily... Uh, in my practice, it wasn't always necessarily ignoring occupations, but sometimes it was about them trying to force change on people. Mm. So with anything that was illicit or, you know, criminal or whatever it was, you know, you can't do that because it's not socially acceptable. Yeah, okay, we've mm. identified it's not socially acceptable, but you trying to force change on someone how well even just as a concept how well do you think that's going to work mm. it's not going to work and there's ethical gray areas about how you should be going about that um you're going to have much more success in like if your if your sole goal is to change those say you know illicit um or antisocial behaviors focusing on them is probably the one thing you're going to do that is going to guarantee you're going to fail at that. Mm. Like genuinely. Yeah. Think about you ever tried to tell a kid not to do something. What's the first thing they're going to do? <laughs> and the same thing, like I see with coping mechanisms, people that do some of these behaviors as coping. mechanisms. I'm not trying to say that that's what graffiti is, but some of these other behaviors that we often look at under the dark side of occupation are sometimes coping mechanisms. Um, Gosh, yeah. I mean, some people told me, and um, quote, um, graffiti saved my life. Yeah. And if I hadn't got involved in graffiti, I would have gotten something that was much more damaging to me. Yeah. I've worked with people that have done very similar for things like prostitution, drug use, like all mm. of this sort of quite antisocial behavior. But using it as a coping mechanism, whenever, if we're trying to force that away from someone trying to stop them from doing that we're taking away uh, a learned behavior we're taking away something that they have adapted to be able to cope with their environment to cope with their world mm. we can't do that without replacing it with anything for one so there's a reason why like 90 percent of people that try and quit smoking fail when they go cold turkey is because they're taking away a coping mechanism. They're taking away a behavior without replacing it with anything. So the moment that that similar situation, whether it be habit or whatever the thing is that they're actually using smoking as a coping mechanism for happens, the mind's natural thing is to revert to what it knows. And what it knows is, mm. oh, I'll spark up a cigarette. That'll help me calm down. It might be habit. 
It could be, oh, mm. you know, I smoke in these situations. You find yourself in that situation. You're chasing one down and lighting it before you even realize what you're doing because it's just habit. So not, I think that's part of the work, isn't it? Finding out what those habits are. Yeah, and but I think going sort of full circle is until you actually understand the reasons why people are engaging in those things, you have Barclays of having any impact on either enhancing or changing any of those behaviors because you don't know what you're working with. As far as I'm concerned, if you don't know why they're engaging in it, you don't know what you're working with. No, and you might just be coming in with solutions that are completely wrong and are pushing that person further away from you. 100%. You're not you're going to kill any kind of rapport that you may have built up until that stage by essentially suggesting inadequate or completely irrelevant options for an issue that they mm. may not even see as an issue. Yeah, and I think like you said rather than focusing on you have to change, which is never going to work for anyone. No. Um, I think it's really important, one, just to be curious. Um, but I think more than anything, you need to focus on the relationship that you have with that person. Um, and so, you know, if that person understands that you are interested in them as a person, you want to understand them as a person, and that you're okay with being challenged, um, I think you've got a, a much better chance of doing some meaningful work with someone and they may still do the occupation you know i'm not saying that that you know necessarily anything's going to change but i think that relationship needs to exist and so even when i thought i was onto something you know i um, you know I, I thought okay let me find out about other people who used to do graffiti who don't do it anymore and let me find out about the journeys that those people have taken and I'll come back and I'll tell my patients about that. And that's going to inspire them that they can change too. I mean, it's, it's, it embarrasses me now, but that was kind of a thread of clinical reasoning I had in the, in the early days. No, but I think in the early days too, and, that was most people's understanding of motivation. Mm, that was like, oh, and, if they can see it and they can see the possibility that someone else can do it, then they'll be inspired to do it. Like That was completely my, my understanding as well at yeah. the time. And I think that could be one strand that could really help someone is, you know, recognizing possibilities. Other people have gone these journeys and mm. um, there are there are other options to me. I think that that is still something that could be helpful for some people. But what I realized was I was going, ah, oh, I found this person who's now doing only legal stuff. And then I found out six months later, no, they don't. Um, <laughs> they do legal stuff, but they still do the illegal stuff just yeah. under a different name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I didn't know that, but obviously my patients did. And so when I was coming in going, aha, I've got a story for you, they're sitting there going, you idiot. Um, <laughs> do you not realize um, that's like one of my friends and I know them and they do this thing. And so I think if you just have a relationship with someone where you can be more candid and not come in knowing the answers, I think that really helps. I think that's because that brings, like, there's so much to unpack with that. But um, one thing, and I've, I've spoken about it before, and I can never remember who actually wrote it, but I've read multiple times and quoted on this podcast about research that I remember reading that looked at the fact that 60% of a positive outcome in any therapeutic relationship was purely based on the relationship that you build had absolutely nothing to do with what you actually did with the person. Mm. 
So mm. if you can essentially is if you can build a positive relationship with someone and you do nothing but that, you're already halfway to a positive uh, outcome, mm. which is, you know, something that most people I still don't think put enough time into uh, building those relationships and giving those relationships time where all mm. time pressures and the way services are designed nowadays don't often, you know, give us the space to be able to do that. But the other thing that um, you mentioned that sort of, again, triggered something with me was uh, looking at, I guess, what we would previously have had an understanding of of motivation being, you know, being able to, uh, I guess, inspire people to be able to make these changes themselves. Um, there's a, a concept uh, from a good friend of mine uh, called the motivation to create change. And she actually frames motivation using, and I'm going to forget some of them, but there's like eight different things that need to go into, um, or eight different things that essentially you need to tick off for people to be motivated enough to make a change. And yes, being able to see that there is a possibility of a different outcome is only one of eight. There's, mm. you know, there's other things like intuition, like your gut feeling. If everything else lines up and your gut's saying, you know, this doesn't feel right, you're not going to be in the best headspace to actually make a change. In most cases, you're not going to do it. Um, there's, it has to align with your values. And like, there's a whole, there's, like I said, there's that, that one thing, which I think most people used to solely have as their understanding of what motivates people, it makes up essentially one of eight different things. So it's, Ooh. you know, what's that? A 12% of <laughs> what's needed to actually make a change. Again, 12% not really going to go a long way to actually changing someone's behaviour. So I think... No, and I think people need to want to change their behaviour as well. You know, we know yeah. that from behavior change and I think if you're going in and telling someone that something that they've always done is a problem yeah and they need to change it um that doesn't help and I think even if they can sense that that's what you think that already creates a barrier and I don't go in now thinking I'm going to stop this person from doing graffiti because actually I have massive respect for it yeah as an occupation and how much it involves obviously yes I would like for people to not break the law Ideally, um, I would also like them not to be walking down train tracks while it's raining at two o'clock in the morning when they might electrocute themselves. Yep. Um, I would like for people not to be climbing up on the side of a really tall building when they are drunk. You know, all these things, you know, I, I would like to reduce harm. Yeah, but yeah. I'm not saying that people need to stop doing graffiti as an occupation because there's many ways that people can do it. I forgot that your uh, your train lines are electrified. Are yours not? Uh, ours are electrified overhead. Okay. So the actual lines themselves are not. But you know, I just just a tip on this electrocution issue. Um, when thinking about risk management, again, I was thinking, oh my gosh, you're doing this really dangerous thing, and I had that conversation really openly, going, that makes me feel really anxious imagining you going out and doing this thing yeah. I'm really worried about you sometimes people come back and go no but you don't understand how the train tracks work 
So only this part of the track is electri- electrified, if that's the right word. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and you know, this is how circuits work. So if you do these things, you keep yourself safe. And this is the way that the the train um, schedule runs. And so, you know, if you do X, Y, Z, and if you watch out for these things, you're safe. And I think it just made me realize that sometimes people have got years worth of knowledge on how to keep themselves safe. And I'm coming in as someone who knows nothing about these things going, I'm going to make sure that you're safe. And And that can be seen as really patronizing. Yeah, I bet. And that's exactly right. I mean, I am not an electricity expert. I couldn't tell you if Mm. there was a safe way to walk on electrified tracks or my knowledge of electricity is don't touch it. (laughs) No, and we're we're not experts in this. But I think just having that conversation with someone about the risks and going, tell me your understanding of the risks. Yeah, yeah. I learned so much and I'm not saying by any, I'm not suggesting anyone should go out and walk down train tracks, but... Um, I think sometimes the people who do these things have got a better awareness of the risks than what we do. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I think it, it really adds to the, oh, not the argument, but it really adds to the sentiment that people are experts in themselves. Like mm. someone that's been doing this, I, what, I'll take a step back. One of the things I don't think that OTs give people enough credit for is their resilience up until the point where we meet them. So mm. someone's been doing this behavior, whether it's, you know, super dangerous or whatever it is, they've been doing it for, let's just say, for example, 15 years. Up mm. until that point, they're still alive. They're still in front of you. They're still functioning. They're still engaging in it. They have managed to do this for 15 years. Yeah, maybe there's been some mishaps, but relatively safely up until that point. You can't do anything for 15 years. I challenge you to try without learning anything about it and learning how to do it yeah. better or learning how to improve how you do it, etc. We're coming in with zero knowledge often um, other than opinion, like I just said before, like my opinion of electricity is pretty much mm. what my dad used to teach me and that the only he used to say that the only two things he knows about electricity is you can't see it coming and it can kill you. That's my. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of my <laughs> knowledge of electricity as well. Um, we're coming in to someone who's, like I said, whether it's right, wrong, or otherwise, has 15 years' experience in dealing with these situations with our preconceived ideas, and we're going to tell them how they should do things. It's yeah. not a good or start. Or even like when it comes to the law, <laughs> you know, you know, forget the risk. You know, if we're coming in with an attitude of, even if we don't say it, um, yeah, but this thing that you're doing is illegal. Do you do you know the law? You know, if that's the the message that they're hearing. Yeah, these people often they know the law really well, um, and they've given that a lot of thought over many years. They've probably been convicted many times and very much know the law. Um, but sometimes I've spoken to people um, who have been you know out and about in the community who do graffiti. And I said, oh, you know, but, you know, do you not worry about ending up back in prison for this? And people have gone, oh, I know I'll end up back in prison someday for this. Um, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. But it's worth it. This means enough to me that I don't mind that I'm going to go to prison at some point. It it matters to me. And they're making that decision, knowing full well the risks to them and also knowing full well what the law is. 
And I think that was one of the other sort of, I guess, important realizations I came to during my career is people are allowed to make what I would perceive as stupid decisions. Like they have well, 100%, 100% the right to make whatever decisions they want to make. And whether I disagree with it or not is not the issue. It, Yes, it creates frustration for me because that, but that like my internal frustration because for whatever reason, I've not been able to, in that case, sort of separate myself from the person I'm working with and why aren't they listening to me and all of these things that I've heard from, you know, clinicians and new grads and students and for a very long time. But in the end, it's still that person's decision. Mm. And we have to, and I, to a degree, we have to respect their decision, whether we agree with it or not. Yeah, and I think, you know, people do get to a point in their lives where they might feel differently about it. So, you know, sometimes, you know, as people get older and they want to maybe start a family or they have a job that they don't want to risk jeopardising because of what they're doing, people go actually I'm, I'm ready to leave this behind now and I'd like to do something else yeah 100%. and I think that's where we come into our our own although I would say from having met a lot of these people in the community they've done that on their own they haven't needed someone to to walk them through it they've gone okay that was something that meant a lot to me and now I'm going to channel those skills in a different way and and that's exactly how you know I was going to say normal humans, but that's exactly how the rest of us have developed mm. up until this point in our lives as well. Like I I think this comes back to another soapbox for me is that OTs seem to think that everyone needs an OT when I don't think they do because mm. 90% of people do exactly what we would suggest naturally. We work with the few people that uh, – don't have the either resilience or the skill set or the ability to adjust their situation when it needs it. I don't think we're necessarily there to force change on people. We're there to help when change is asked for. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's finding that balance, isn't it, of knowing when it's okay to, to step back and, you know, you've, yeah. you've done a bit of work with someone and, and you've realised that this isn't something that they want to work on right now. Yep. Or it might be that you go, actually, I am really, really concerned about the risks in this particular situation and I'm not sure the person is in the right frame of mind right now to be able to manage those risks themselves as they would normally. And so maybe I do need to intervene here. Yep. You know, I think it's that's about our professional judgment of what needs to be addressed and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, our conversation that we're having about basically essentially people having the right to make their own decisions. I completely believe in that. Um, and I think we also need to be willing to ask these questions and explore this, that we know whether it is something we need to intervene in or not. I think if you just make an assumption based on what you see in someone's background, you don't know if it's an issue that needs addressing or not. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of the time, again, coming full circle, to what we were talking about earlier, um, part of us and that assumption is us using preconceptions that we don't fully have. So whether or not it's about mm. us also 
spending more time and learning about whatever occupation it is or whether it's also, well, probably not and or, but as well as, you know, like you said, listening to resources like this or, you know, uh, journal articles about the specific topics, trying to learn as much as you can about the occupation, the culture, the community, the engagement, whatever it is with regards to that occupation Mm. for that individual. Any information that you can bring, the more information that you can bring to that situation, the better you're going to be able to support that person with whatever they want to do. Yeah. And I think we don't need to do all of that work ourselves. No. Um, So you and I, we spoke in our last podcast um, about reaching out to other people who've got experience of something and getting that support. Yeah. And, you know, certainly I'm happy for people to contact me if they're working with people who engage in graffiti and just want to run an idea past me or want to use it as a thinking space because everyone is so different that I couldn't possibly give a list of, you know, this is what you do. And so I think if we reach out to people who we know have an interest in that specific occupation um, and maybe don't know everything. I certainly am still at the beginner stage, but I've got, I'm further along in that understanding of what someone coming to it cold would be. I think we need to just reach out for support, have those conversations. A hundred percent. Something else I'm actually curious about is, so it, it's all well and good. So far we've had a look at sort of engaging with the client. How do you go about having those conversations with say other members of the treating team do they are they able to so obviously in the process of this like we're talking about a few times we're looking at trying to essentially educate ourselves and put our own personal biases aside to be able to work with the client in talking with other members of the treating team have you found that they're able to do the same has it been difficult i think i haven't had very many problems with it um but I think it's probably when I'm having a conversation about this I need to make explicit the knowledge that I've gained you know because I have to remember that everyone else doesn't know the things that I know about it now so if we are doing a risk assessment about a patient and I'm saying oh could we also add their graffiti to the risk assessment um people are probably going to say no unless I say my concerns about this are if we're talking about substance misuse that usually they're under the influence when they do graffiti, which may influence their um, their decision-making or their ability to keep themselves safe. Yeah. So could we add that into the risk assessment on this section, for example? So it's more like a or, comorbidity, uh, though. Perhaps. I'm not sure if I would even think of it as that, but it's kind of it's just a factor in someone's life that might impact on risk. Yeah. It might not, but if, you know, if that's the conversation... I, but I'd have to make it explicit and remember that people don't understand the occupation in the way that I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or, you know, if I've got to the point where I've actually done loads of motivational work with someone and um, they're open to trying to do the same occupation, but in a legal space. So on a hall of fame, for example, Yep. they've got to a point where they've got leave. I've managed to get all the relevant permission, um, you know, documented from, you know, whatever organization that we're going to go paint the wall of that's okay and I'm running that by the team I have to explain my clinical reasoning of why I think it's worth intervening in this and what benefit it might have to the patient 
and also um, what risks might be in that environment. So like, you know, the conversation might be that I know that people in this environment will be smoking weed. Yeah, yeah. That's a given. Um, and I know that my patient has problems with this, for example. Um, and so then we're thinking, is this an okay risk to take? How are we going to manage that? Yep. And so yep. I think it's gotcha. just about making those things explicit to the team. Yep. So it's not necessarily you trying to, I guess, instill the amount of knowledge that you have around the occupation, but more, uh, I guess, highlighting the key risk points or like clinically significant points to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. It's making it, making sure it's clinically significant. You know, I'm interested in graffiti and I can talk about it for hours, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> as we have. <laughs> the rest of the team, yeah. <laughs> the rest of the team are not. So they just need to know what's relevant for this specific conversation, whether it is substance misuse or um, whether it's maybe, um, yeah, just deciding on priorities for treatment. Do you know, this, this type of work isn't something that you should do completely on your own and without involving the team. Yeah. You, know, you need to be accessing supervision and you need to be keeping the team in the loop of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Do you ever find the like treating team to be, uh, I guess, less accepting of the fact that, okay, these occupations are valuable to the person. We can't just say you can't do this anymore kind of thing. I don't know if it's um, just the, you know, the setting I work in or, you know, specific individuals, but I've actually had other treating teams contact me and go, I heard that you have an interest in working with people with graffiti. I've got someone on my ward who has a history of graffiti could you come and help us think about what we can do in this area that's awesome and something else that really surprised me was that once you know and it wasn't like I was out there looking for anyone who had an interest in graffiti it just I think it's just quite prevalent in my population oh yeah yeah um and so once I've been working with a few people with this background and clearly they had grown to trust me they were obviously having conversations with other people who none of us, you know, I, I had no idea that they did graffiti. But then other other patients were coming to me and going, I heard that you understand graph. Can you help me? Because this is something I, I used to do. Yeah. Um, and I've been struggling not being able to do this. And can we talk about it? And so I think it's, you know, when you've got that respect and that trust, you then can access more people who might need that support but have never articulated that. That's really cool, and I think that's a that would that's a a model. I think, I, well, I wish more services would take. In a way, like you you're playing to people's strengths, um, rather than to just where they happen to be located. <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, I I certainly don't spend a lot of my time doing this anymore. Um, it was more when I was on an acute ward and that oh, was yeah, yeah. the population I was working with a lot. But, but yeah, I think it's worth tapping into the resources that we have in an organization yep. rather than reinventing the wheel or going, we don't have anyone who understands this. Let's leave it. Yeah, yep. I think it's helpful if, if it's well known what your areas of interest are. Although I never, I never dreamt of becoming the OT who knows about graffiti. That was never something I wanted. Um, Surprise. But it's, just kind of, it's happened that way. Yeah. yeah. 
That's awesome. So I guess while we're talking, I'm just really aware of not wanting anyone who's listening to feel like this is something that they need to do or that this is an expectation when you're working um, on the dark side of occupation. Yeah, Because yeah. it isn't. This was that. just something that I wanted to understand and it was a vehicle for me to think through how does one work with the dark side of occupation. And so, I, you know, I think that people can um, – can do this work without needing to go into the depth that I have. I just want to make that really clear. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and, that, and I certainly wouldn't suggest that anybody who's, you know, let's say if you're working in substance misuse, I'm not saying that you should go out and see what heroin feels like. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm, I'm really not suggesting that. Um, and certainly not suggesting that anyone should break the law because um, I never did. You know, I, I was very, very careful to think about my professional boundaries at all times and my safety at all times and not to do anything that would compromise me professionally. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that that's something that you need to do, even though there are, you know, there are sociologists who do things like that and they write under pseudonyms. I think we can leave that work to the academics. Um, and as clinicians, we can focus on what we're good at, which is about understanding the people that are sat in front of us and what they need and tailor making interventions to those people. And I think that's all that's expected. Definitely, definitely. And I think, like like you said, there's uh, more and more, uh, probably in the last couple of years, I've seen more and more uh, narrative explorations of people going through certain situations, different occupational transitions, experience of different occupational engagement. The information for a lot of, uh, oh, sorry, a wider variety of occupations is out there already being able mm. to read it so that you have more information yourself and then take that to the people that you work with and combine that with what they teach you let them teach you and mm. you're going to have you know a better outcome for for that person and being able to make a better connection with that person than you would have just going in blind with your own just your own pre, uh, preconception so yeah like I'm glad you highlighted that because we're not trying to say that, you know, you need to go out there and <laughs> do a two-year in-depth uh, immersion into every subculture and every occupation out there. Yeah. Um, but there's resources like this podcast, like there's plenty of other podcasts, like journal articles, like books, stories, movies. There's a lot of movies and documentaries mm. and stuff about people engaging in a variety of things. You can learn things from that as well. Um, the other thing I would say is if you obviously like you like you highlighted before, don't go ahead and break the law. But if you have an expertise around uh any sort of specific areas that a lot of people don't, share it. Write a blog, mm. chat with someone, get you know, email, go on a podcast, do like share <laughs> the knowledge that you have uh, with everyone because, you know, rising tide raises all ships. So we can all make each other better by sharing what we know. Thank you so much for coming in again and uh, sharing your, what? well, for me, it's extensive knowledge. I know you still consider yourself to be a beginner, but it's I've learned more about graffiti in the last, I don't even know how long it's been, hour and a half maybe, than I have in the last 30, however many years I've been alive. So <laughs> thank you again for coming in and, and 
sharing a little bit of your yourself and your your knowledge with everyone here. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been it's been great to have this conversation. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to occupiedpodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.